Make the choice to begin anywhere in your life, and the journey has started. We exist more than just to educate. We exist to also revitalize. And along the way, you can inspire others and be inspired. But now there's a new generation of scholars, and I am among them. If you really want to know who you are and what you are capable of, Howard is the choice for you. Take a moment. Listen to the stories by joining the president of Howard University, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick, and his guest on The Journey. At such a critical time for race relations in our country, it is vital that we understand the role of journalism in steering our national conversation and social progress, or for that matter, lack of it. Not only must our newsrooms reflect the communities where they are reporting, but we need to infuse the profession with diverse talent. Hello, my name is Dr. Wayne Frederick, and my guest today on The Journey is Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Night Chair in Race and Journalism at the Cathy Hughes School of Communication and founder of the Center for Journalism and Democracy. Ms. Hannah-Jones, welcome to The Journey. Thank you for having me, Dr. Frederick. So I want to start at the very beginning. Why don't you tell us a bit about your childhood, where you grew up? Um, I think you have some pretty uh, amazing, diverse background in terms of your experience growing up, and that probably has informed your appetite to the world. I didn't realize we were going to go that far back in history, but <laughs> when I was a young lass, um, <laughs> no, I, uh, as you know, I grew up in the Midwest in a small town uh, called Waterloo, Iowa, and uh, even though people don't typically think about black people in Iowa, um, I'm a child of the Great Migration, and Waterloo had a substantial black population, and so I... Um, often think two things really drove my interest in news and history. One was both of my parents were avid readers, but my father in particular uh, used to read the daily newspaper with him. That was that was a thing that we did together. Some of my earliest memories are reading the newspaper with my dad. Um, and I got bused um, to white schools as part of a school desegregation program starting in the second grade through 12th grade. and. I just observed a lot of things on those long bus rides and being in white neighborhoods and white schools, um, mainly that their parents were not working harder than the parents in my community, that uh, they didn't desire nice houses or safe neighborhoods any more than the people in my community, and yet um, they were able to acquire those things, and the hardworking people in my community were not. So I began to question why, and of course, uh, the message we got from popular media, from society, didn't match what I was seeing um, and observing in my own neighborhood. And um, so I wanted to study history because history explained that. And I wanted to be a journalist because I, I understood even as a child how important it was for us to be able to shape the narratives of our own communities. So you went to Waterloo West High School and uh, wrote for the student newspaper. I'm sure everyone watching this has heard of Waterloo West. <laughs> if they haven't, they've heard of it now. So tell me what Waterloo West was like. Yeah, so my... Um, my hometown only had two public high schools, East and West. Our high school was about 20% black, and all of those kids were bused in. Um, and that, of course, had uh, such a, um, um, it was formative in shaping my views. Um, we often weren't welcomed in the school. We weren't made to feel like we belonged in the school. I was one of a handful of black kids who were in the, in the um, considered the academic uh, track, uh, but most of my Black friends from the neighborhood were in the lower track, um, and I knew I wasn't, you know, smarter. <laughs> well, I was smarter than most of the kids in my high school, but not just the black kids, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So I just 
kind of always having to deal with those racial tensions in the school and really refusing to let white teachers uh, exceptionalize me um, as they did with the handful of kids that were allowed into those ac academic classes. So I think that my, um, my political consciousness really was raised at that high school. That's where I had my first black studies class with Mr. Ray Dial, where I first got introduced really to black literature and black political theory and uh, African history and black American history. And it was that same teacher who encouraged me to join my high school newspaper uh, when I complained to Mr. Dial that our high school paper never wrote about the black kids who were bust and our experiences and the stereotypes that we faced. And, uh, you know, as great black educators will do, he said, Join the paper and write those stories yourself or shut up and don't complain anymore, so. Um, you've worked in North Carolina, Oregon, New York, and obviously you have a different view of the world and there's a lot of focus on one body of work that you've done. But as I've said to you before, I think if people <laughs> ever really step back and look at the full body of work uh, that you've completed, they will see what I see, uh, which I think is, is exceptionalism, but it's also based on excellence. So with that in mind, I'd like to know kind of what that work has shown you oh, okay. and, and why living in all these different places has given you this kind of, you know, view uh, of America and of some of those issues such as desegregation of schools or the lack of it. Yeah, um, so as you know, most of my career was spent writing about um, school and housing segregation and not the 1619 Project, even though that's what I'm most well known for now. Um, and I started covering education just because that was the first job I got as a, as a journalist. I was placed on the education beat. And I started covering schools in um, Durham, North Carolina. And um, that would have been about 2003. And I'd learned that Durham Public Schools had just been released from a federal school desegregation order a decade earlier. And then I learned that there were all these districts that were still under school desegregation orders. And like many people, I thought this was a relic of the past. I didn't know that districts were still fighting, um, being, uh, still fighting integration that late. And then when I started to look at the data, I saw that actually the most segregated parts of the country were not in the South. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're, we're all kind of indoctrinated into this belief that uh, the South is the racist part of the country and the North is the, the progressive and... Um, uh, you know, racially egalitarian part of society. Well, I already knew that wasn't true because I grew up in, in the Midwest and hadn't seen that with my own eyes, but I didn't realize that the most entrenched segregation was not actually in the South, not in housing and not in schools. And so that just led me to want to look more deeply into this issue of school segregation, especially I, I started uh, reporting during No Child Left Behind, which was basically the Bush, George Bush policy saying we aren't going to try to break up poverty in schools, we're not going to try to break up uh, racial concentration in schools, we're just going to test kids and uh, give higher standards with no extra money and just somehow expect uh, all schools to compete equally. Um, and knowing what I knew, which is that black kids are not less capable or less intelligent than anyone else. I wanted to know why they weren't getting the same academic results. And um, so much of the data shows that, of course, what we know is black kids in black schools just don't get the same resources as other schools. They just never have. Um, so that really is where I began to focus most of my work. Um, and what I can tell you from living, as you said, I've lived in every region of the country. And wherever there are black people, black people are segregated. Um, wherever there are black children, black children are segregated. Um, and that's, that is what you see when you travel the country or when you live in other places in the country. You're listening to The Journey. My guest today is Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Night Chair in Race and Journalism at the Cathy Hughes School of Communications. 
and founder of the Center for Journalism and Democracy. Let's talk a bit about the 1619 Project. What was the original genesis for it? Because, again, um, it takes on a lot of attention, but clearly it's something that you started and did a lot of research on, worked on for quite some time. So what was the original uh, idea behind it? Uh, in some ways, I feel like I, I've been working towards the 1619 Project my whole career. All of my journalism, as you know, um, was always about trying to excavate the past to help explain the current inequality that we see. I've, I've always felt so much reporting on race is just very superficial. It's just a cataloging of maladies, right? A report about black people suffering from this or suffering from that as if no one's causing the suffering. Um, and so I, I've always wanted to use my reporting to show the architecture of the inequality. What were the policies? What were the laws? Who are the decision makers that have led to this inequality? And I would uh, kind of joke with my editors that my articles kept getting longer and longer because I was moving further and further back in time and that eventually I was going to get back to 1619. It was a joke, uh, but not really, obviously. Okay. <laughs> So when the 400th anniversary of 1619 was approaching in 2019, early 2019, I just decided I, I, I wanted to force an acknowledgement of that date, of the weight of that date, of how foundational slavery was, that there's almost nothing in America that's 400 years old, um, but slavery is, and um, that it couldn't just be me writing a single essay or article, that it, it required something really big. And so um, I thought, let's just take over the whole issue of the New York Times Magazine and dedicated to excavating the modern legacy of slavery. Uh, so that was really the genesis of the project. And I always think it's important for people who haven't actually read the project, um, for people who have only heard about the project to know that this is a work of multiple writers. Um, some of the most renowned historians in our country uh, are authors in the project, and um, some of the most renowned journalists are authors in the project, and then many, many, many more um, who consulted, who fact-checked on the project. It, it really is a, um, it is a collective project. It is a project that seeks to represent uh, the 40 million descendants of American slavery. So as you did the project, knowing all that you've known, if you can isolate one part of it that probably was shocking to you that somebody else may have either written or, or researched that when you read it, you saw, you, you know, it was still shocking to you with all the knowledge that you've had about the things that you were excavating. As you said, it wasn't just a catalog of maladies, but what malady in particular probably stood out for you? Um, so there's so much uh, that is deeply troubling in uh, the project. Um, I'm going to give Two things that sure. surprised me, one, one, one painful, one kind of joyful, but um, is Dorothy Roberts' essay on race, um, which I, um, I assigned to Dorothy Roberts because, I mean, you know, she's just the expert and um, on black women and the way black women's bodies have been used um, and uh, the way that society has seen black women. Um, and I wanted her to write an essay about kind of how black women's wombs were used to recreate the slavery, right? Slavery is literally created through black women's wombs. And even to this day, we, we find black women's reproduction as problematic. Um, and the essay that she produced, even though I, I knew, I mean, I signed it, so I, I knew some of the generalities, just thinking about the fact that Black women were not considered rapable by law. Um, you could not sexually assault a black woman uh, no more than you could sexually assault 
uh, cattle, that the only crime that was committed if a black woman was raped was um, the crime against her owner for you possibly damaging um, property, and that rape was, of course, incentivized because you just want black women to reproduce. Um, and uh, it was the first time that I read about breeding, that um, we think a lot about the physical labor of slavery, uh, being in the fields or, um, you know, working wherever black people were working in physical labor, but not the sexual labor that black women uh, were being forced um, into. And just to have to sit and think, you know, about that, and then particularly sit in that as a black woman was, um, I mean, even now, it, it's something I, I can't quite wrap my mind around. So you've used the phrase, um, come home to train your own. Uh, what does that mean and why Howard? <laughs> um, well, let me just first say, Howard has been amazing. Uh, I, I teach on Mondays and it's like the, my favorite day of the week. Um, it's everything that I expected it would be, which is the students are just so engaged and dynamic and um, they like tough love and I like to give it. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's just been great. Um, you know, the older I've gotten, when I was younger, um, I really bought into this notion that so many of us, uh, when you grow up in a working class black community, um, have kind of instilled in us that if someone in your community sees potential in you, they always tell you, you know, get your education and get out of here. And uh, so many of us are raised to think that success means uh, going into white institutions, proving you can compete at uh, in white institutions, and then suffering the whole time, right? Um, because these institutions aren't built for us. But the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that was the wrong message, and that's not the life that I that I want to live. Um, um, and so it just was a natural choice. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years before, right before COVID, Jelani Cobb and Tanahazi and I gave a talk here. And one of the students asked me, uh, why don't you come teach at Howard? And I was like, nobody ever asked me to come teach at Howard or I'd come <laughs> teach at Howard. So it's always been something that I wanted. I always knew eventually um, if I went into academia, I would come to an HBCU because um, this is where my heart is. I, I want to spend the time working with students who were like me um, and uh, building institutions for students who were like me. And, um, you know, where else would you want to go besides Howard? Great. Well, I'm glad I got a chance to ask you to come and teach at Howard <laughs> um, and that you said yes. Thank you for being here. My guest today was Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Night Chair in Race and Journalism at the Cathy Hughes School of Communications and founder of the Center for Journalism and Democracy. I'm Dr. Wayne Frederick. Please join me next time on The Journey.